There comes a time in our lives when only an intimate relationship with God will satisfy. Many Christians go through life with a low sense of spiritual vitality because their days are largely consumed with secular pursuits. Prayer and Bible reading are a one-a-day fast food item. Real life is not life in the spirit, but life in the flesh. They're reaching here, they're reaching there. They do this and they do that. They're trying to fit Christianity to meet a social need. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps your Christianity is just something you see that can be shoehorned into your social activities. Or perhaps just that's what your Christianity is, nothing more than a social activity. However, this will change dramatically. Because God will use chaos, calamities, and contagions to bring us to a crisis point that will throw us with new seriousness upon the Lord. Chaos, calamity, and contagions are like emotional earthquakes. They will break down our defenses and they will open us up to the Lord. They'll make us realize our hunger for the Lord. And as these emotional earthquakes break down our defenses, we're going to find a deep inner longing, hunger for God. And Psalm 63 is a witness to that longing and its satisfaction. Now the superscription states that David wrote this psalm when he was in the wilderness of Judah. The mention of the king in verse 11 points to the time when Absalom, not Saul, had made David take to the wilderness of Judah on his way to the Jordan. You can cross-reference that with 2 Samuel 15.23. And as we go through Psalm 63, we're going to entitle this psalm, The Psalm for the Hungry Soul. For the Hungry Soul. We're going to see, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, David's craving. In verses 3 to 5, we're going to see David's contentment. In verses 6 through 8, we're going to see David's conviction. And then in verses 9 to 11, we're going to see David's confidence. So let's begin in verses 1 and 2, and let's take note of David's craving, which was a longing for God. A longing for God. Verse 1 and 2, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. As David calls out in prayer to God, he's confessing his faith. This God is not any God, it's his God. And David lives in a relationship with him. A relationship that is the priority in his life. Is that true of you? Is God, is a relationship with God, the priority in your life? If it's not, then you may be just the type of Christian I described. You're going through life with a low sense of spiritual vitality. Your life is consumed with secular pursuits. Prayer and Bible reading are just fast food items on your daily menu. But somebody who's hungry for the Lord, has a longing for the Lord, is craving for the Lord, is one who has a relationship with Him. He says, I shall seek you earnestly. He's putting his entire being into this spiritual search. 
The verb used here, to seek, means to seek with longing. It implies that David had a passionate desire for God. Do you have that passion? My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Is that, is that how much you crave, long for God? Are you thirsting for God? Are you yearning for God? Is that your passion? David describes his thirst for God in the context of a dry land where there is no water. He's using his very real physical experience to describe his spiritual condition. And now let's take note of how often God speaks to people in the wilderness. It was in the wilderness that Moses and Israel received the Torah before entering the promised land. It was in the wilderness that the word of God came to Elijah. It was in the wilderness that the word of God came to John the baptizer. Even our Lord himself, filled with the Holy Spirit, was driven into the wilderness. You see, it's the wilderness experience that will strip us of our defenses and reveal our vulnerabilities. It is the wilderness experience that will quiet us before God. Make us ready to hear him. Make us ready to do battle with ourselves and with the devil. And I believe that the chaos and the calamity and the contagion that is rocking this country and this world are, the, are a wilderness experience from God brought, about, brought upon his church to cause them to wake up to cause them to rouse out of a sleep, to cause them to long for God once again. David remembers his spiritual thirst had been quenched in the past when he was in the sanctuary, the tabernacle. Now David's cut off from the tabernacle. He can't go to the house of the Lord. And so in this wilderness experience, in this place where he's cut off, unable to go to the tabernacle, to go to the house of God, he can still cry out to God. He still hungers and thirsts for God. But he remembers, Lord, when I saw your presence, when I dwelt in your presence, you satisfied me. You took my thirst away. And David's going to find out that whether he's in the wilderness or whether he's in the house of God, God can quench that thirst. And when David says that uh, he saw the presence of God, the power and glory of God, he's referring to the Shekinah glory of God that inhabited the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. So David's craving is a longing for God. Verses 3 to 5, David's contentment is the worship of God. Verses 3 to 5, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praise with joyful lips. Notice David's worship was based on God's loving kindness. Now, loving kindness is his mercy, his chesed, his covenant love. We often have this word translated as mercy in the Old Testament. And I want you to notice here that David's worship was not based on a location. It was not based on the people. It was based on the mercy, the loving kindness of God. 
Christian, what are you basing your worship on? Do you feel you can't worship God unless you're in a certain place? Do you feel that you can't worship God unless you're with certain people? If that's the case, you need to examine your worship. Because the Bible says here, David says here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that his worship was based on the mercy of God. See, our worship, regardless of where or who we're with, our worship has to be focused on God's character. In this case, His mercy. Maybe His holiness, His love, His justice, etc. He says, I have known the mercy or the loving kindness of God. You know, to, to be loved by God in this way, David says, is better than life. Here David responds to God's love. He says, My lips shall praise you. I will bless you while I live. I will show appreciation, gratitude, goodwill for you while I live. He's worshiping as he focuses on the character of God, even in the wilderness. He is lifting up his voice. With his lips he's praising God. Notice also he says, He will lift his hands to the name of God. Now the idea of lifting up his hands demonstrated the fact that he was clean. He had confessed his sins. He was uh, uh, like a child when told to go wash their hands for dinner. And they come out and the parent says, let me see your hands. Put up your hands to see whether they're clean or not. So in the Old Testament and continuing even in the New Testament, when believers would raise up their hands, it wasn't because they were caught up in some emotional moment they were putting up their hands to God in an act of worship to say, Lord, examine me that I am clean before you, that I have confessed and forsaken my sin. And so we see that worship of God is not dependent on a place or people. Worship of God is dependent on His character. And it requires you and me to invoke our lips and... To invoke our hands. To invoke our hands in the sense, I'm not telling you that you have to raise your hands. If you want to, that's fine. But understand why you're doing it. But more so than the outward physical act, it has to be an inward confession and forsaking of sin before a holy God as we come to worship Him. Why? Because we're people of unclean lips, as Isaiah says. So before our lips can praise Him, our life has to be right with him. And he says the result of his worship is that his soul is now satisfied. Interesting, the word satisfied means fully fed, and David says as with marrow and fatness. Now this is interesting because under Leviticus 3.16, they were not to eat any fat. The fat of the meat was given to the Lord and burnt on the altar. As a result of worship, God is giving David the fat to eat which is basically the food that was set apart for the Lord. The Lord says, now, here, take and eat my food and be filled. And again, he responds in praise with joyful lips. Literally, lips of a ringing cry. So David's craving is for a longing for God. His contentment is in his worship of God. And his conviction is on the, about the care of God. Verses 6 to 8. David's conviction is that God cares. The care of God. 
When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. See, David not only engages in public worship, he also seeks God in, in private, in his bed. And that's where he remembers and meditates on him. You know, it's good for us to tap into our memories. Do you do that? Do you tap into your memories of what God has done for you? Oh, we can tap into our memories of all the good times and the bad times we've had in the highways and byways of life, up and down, all around. But do you ever take a moment to stop and tap into your memory of what God has done for you? The reason we tap into those memories is because memories encourage faith. Memories show us the faithfulness of God in our lives. That's exactly why Jesus extended the elements of the Lord's Supper and said, Do this in remembrance of me. David says he remembers him and he meditates on him in the night watches. The word meditate here is unique. It means to moan, to growl, to speak, indicating that his meditation wasn't just silent. It was active. It was verbal. He was mulling these things over out loud. He was putting conscious energy into mulling over what God has done in his life as, they, as he was going through the night watches. Now, the night watches were the moments when they would announce uh, the certain passing of hours. For example, the first night watch would begin at 6 p.m., 9 p.m., 12 a.m., 3 a.m. The last one would be 6 a.m. And so you could note the passing of the night by the announcement by the night watchers or the guards. And so as the night is passing, he's thinking, he's remembering, he's meditating, and finding security in the hours of darkness as he meditates on God. The basis for David's meditation is that God has been his help. He says, I'm rejoicing because I'm under, the wi under his wings. I'm under his shield. I'm under his protection. I'm shouting for joy. That's what the word rejoice means, to shout for joy. And moreover, because of God's protection, David says, my soul clings to you. In other words, I'm following you close behind. I'm right behind you just like a soldier traveling behind the shield that he carries. Your right hand upholds me. He's so close to God that, that he's right there being held by his right hand. Are you that close to God? Are you that close to God that when the fiery darts of the enemy come at you, they're quenched by the shield that is God? Or are you being hit by those? Listen, if you're being hit by the fiery darts of the devil, it's because you're not behind the shield. You're lagging behind. Are you so close to God that he's holding your hand and guiding you through this wilderness? Or is your hand outstretched, reaching, trying to grab a hold, but still because you're lagging behind, you're not right there? By the way, that's not going God. It's not that God has distanced himself from you, not at all. It's because you have distanced yourself from God. We need to be clinging to God. We need to be holding his right hand, the hand of his authority and power especially not only in the wilderness, but in the nighttime meditations. Think of God's help, think of his protection, think of his authority, and God will keep you safe. 
Notice David's conf uh, confidence in verses 9 through 11. His conviction was the care of God. His contentment was his worship of God. His craving was a longing for God. And now finally in verses 9 through 11, we have David's confidence, which is victory in God. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They'll be delivered over to the power of the sword. They'll be a prey for foxes, but the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. See, David says he's in a battle here. His enemies are seeking his life, his soul, to destroy it. But because of God's help and power that he had meditated on in the night... He knows they'll be destroyed. They'll go into the lower parts of the earth, namely Sheol, hell. That's where they'll go. They're going, going straight to hell. And the means of their destruction will be that they will fall by the sword of God. God will take them down. God will slay the enemy. And you know what? He's not just going to slay the enemy. He's going to make an open public example by leaving their carcass in the battlefield for these foxes, these little carnivorous mammals with their little pointy noses and ears and bushy tails to come in and eat snack on their dead flesh. That's what God does to our enemies. He just doesn't take them down. Oh no. He makes a public example out of them. You know, we have enemies too. Paul reminds us that our enemies are not human, but, the, but, but spiritual, and therefore our weapons must be spiritual. The devil's seeking whom he may devour. He's trying to destroy us. But be, be, be assured, Christian, you're going to have victory in, in Christ because he one day will send the devil into the lower parts of the earth, even then later into the lake of fire. And the devil knows that his doom is sure, he is all the more angry and violent because of that towards us in this life. Thus it is imperative like David that you remember God at the night and know that he is your help, your protection, and your power. He's going to give you the victory. He's going to fight the battle, not you. And that's why we can rejoice and shout for joy. David concludes, the king shall rejoice in God. David's joy is not merely in winning the battle. He didn't say, I'm rejoicing because I won. No, he's rejoicing in God. It's God who won the battle for him. And I believe that one of the dangers in worshiping God for his benefits when we are the winners is that we end up worshiping the benefits and not the God who gave them to us. And I believe that's why God's got us in this wilderness. I believe that's why he's brought this chaos. I believe that's why he's brought this calamity. I believe that's why he's brought this contagion upon the church of God, upon the whole world, but particularly upon the church of God. He's got us in a wilderness because we've been too busy worshiping our blessings. Whether it's our buildings, whether it's our conveniences, whether it, 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 it's our pews or our chairs or whatever, he's he has stripped those things away from us for a reason. And that reason is to bring us face to face with God alone. That we would stop looking. And hey, listen, we praise God for all of the things that he's blessed us with. But I think especially here in America, we've gotten so used to the conveniences in worship that we're worshiping the convenience and not God. And the evidence is, and you've got to examine yourself, the evidence is, well, I can't worship unless I'm in a certain place or I'm with certain people. You've got to examine yourself. If you find yourself saying that, and don't, get, don't mistake what I'm saying. 
I look forward to when we can gather again. I look forward to being in the building that God has blessed us with. But right now, we're in a place where God has stripped those things from us to make us worship God and God alone. One-on-one, us and God. That's a beautiful thing. You know, he put David in the wilderness for a period of time. He's put us in the wilderness for a period of time. He will bring, just like he brought David back, he'll bring us back. But when he does, let's not just rest on our laurels. Let's not just go, oh, we can go back to the way things used to be. Listen, I don't think it's a case of let's get back to the way things used to be. I think God has given us an opportunity to redefine redefine how things ought to be for him. David concludes by saying, Everyone who swears by him shall glory. To swear by him is to literally pledge your allegiance to God. And when you pledge your allegiance to God, it ensures that his victory will be your victory. The liars, they'll be proven wrong. Their mouths will be stopped by God's judgment. You know, in this psalm, David's longing for God is satisfied as he worships, meditates, and then goes into battle. And look at the sequence there. Sequence is crucial. He didn't run into battle without meditating and without worshiping. We too must worship and meditate before we fight, before we engage our enemy. And when we do finally engage the enemy, let us only fight in the power of God. That means on the battlefield, you need to follow close behind him and be held by his right hand. And as that becomes your spiritual lifestyle, believer, you'll see God's power, you'll see God's glory, and your hunger for him will be satisfied. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the text here in Psalm 63 that you've given to us. Father, that you've promised us the victory, but before the victory is the battle, and before the battle, Father, we need to meditate. And Lord, even long for you, worship you. Father, it's easy to worship or to think we're worshiping when we have all the trappings. But Father, when you strip all the trappings away and put us in a wilderness, put us in a place where we're apart, it really gets down to the nitty-gritty of why am I worshiping and who am I worshiping? What am I worshiping? We're worshiping you because of who you are and what you've done, and we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to examine ourselves. And Lord, if you show us anything within ourselves that, that uh, needs to be uh, dismissed, cut out, removed, forsaken, then Lord, make that aware to us that we may do that, that we may cleanse ourselves, lift up our hands in a sense, so that we can come and worship you in the way and the manner in which you require. We thank and praise you for these things in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen.